Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the mercy and grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for the mission upon which you've sent us in this world, and for the strength of your Holy Spirit. We pray now that as we read your word again uh, today, this uh, remarkable and fascinating word of uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, that you would be our guide and teacher. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. Well, welcome back to heaven. But I mean here, although you might be sitting next to that special someone, so it might be nearly heaven for you. That's, uh, I understand that's the fourth object of the EU. Uh, this is a bit of a secret. Uh, I think the staff talk about it in such terms. But who knows? There are plenty of people here who met Ms. Wright at EU, or Mr. Wright. No, I mean, welcome back to heaven, which is where the Apostle John takes us in his vision. We call it the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse, and we're in the second of our times together trying to work our way through getting a bird's eye view of this book, overseeing where it's going and uh, what it teaches us, and we've been treated to two profound scenes so far. Remember the first one? I was on the island of Patmos where John was due to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It was a freaky picture. He's got all sorts of weird stuff going on. His white hair's gone all white. Uh, he's got uh, Miss World Universe uh, on with the sash. That sort of deal is going. And a great big sword coming out of his mouth. And it's a, it's a terrific introduction to uh, the Revelation because it shows us how uh, we need to understand the imagery uh, of this uh, apocalyptic letter uh, in a way that speaks about true things and uh, concrete realities, but does so with a pictorial or symbolic language. You can be confident Jesus has no sword, at least no metal sword. He has a verbal sword, the words which come out of his mouth, which speak straight into our hearts, and it's fantastic. The pictures of Jesus... Uh, this one who died and was uh, raised and lives again, standing amongst the seven lampstands. Remember the seven lampstands? What do the seven lampstands represent? The church. The church in its wholeness, in its completeness, and Jesus is with his church. He doesn't abandon it. He hasn't gone home. He hasn't gone into retirement. He's amongst his church. Encouraging and rebuking and praising and strengthening. The second vision we saw was of heaven and John is invited to come up into heaven through an open door and it raised the key issue for us, what does heaven represent? I suggested that there's one way you can understand heaven, it's the way we normally talk about heaven, it's that place of fulfilment or completion, uh, the goal or hope to which uh, we're all looking, uh, the, the end, the end times and typically I think Revelation has been understood this way, that what heaven represents is a picture of the end times. And I suggested to you that that was a bit of a square peg and that if you try and shove it into the round hole of Revelation, at various points what you'll do is you'll cut bits off and scrape bits and it just won't fit very well. And I'll show some examples of why that is again today. Instead, I want to suggest to you that Revelation is, well, it's a bit like the red pill of the Matrix. Remember we looked at that uh, uh, movie where uh, we have a workaday world which we all see, it all looks normal, it makes sense. Uh, it's profoundly influential on us as to what constitutes a normal life. Right? You know what constitutes a normal life, don't you? Normal life means you go to uni, uh, you meet that person, maybe at the EU, 
a, you graduate with a reasonable kind of degree and you get a reasonable kind of job that pays a reasonable kind of salary in the top 0.05 of 1% in all of human history. You buy a house in a reasonable kind of place like the North Shore or if you're really snobby, the Sutherland Shire. You know what I mean? You, and then you have a few kids and you send them to reasonable schools, especially independent schools, if uh, that's what you think is needed. And then you raise them and you get a bit older and they look after you and that's what life's about, right? John says, take the red pill. Take the red pill. See that, well, not that we're a bunch of human beings in pods feeding electricity to computers. No, that's not what we're to see. See that at the centre of all reality is the living and true God. Worshipped and adored by all of creation. That's what's real. That, that your life is to be lived in utter and wholehearted devotion to him, that every moment of every day, every relationship, every decision you take, every context you're in, every job you do, every thought you think can be given over to the worship and glory of God. The whole of your life is shot through with potential dignity greater than paying off your mortgage. That's what's reality. And not only that, we saw that beside this one on the throne is a lamb who was slain. The lion king who was the lamb who was slain. And, and which of these two pictures is true? Is he a lion or is he a slain lamb? The answer is He's both because the great lesson of Revelation is that conquest, victory, triumph is achieved by having the biggest bank balance, is achieved by annoying the fewest people in your life, is achieved by walking the path set to you by your parents and family. No, victory and triumph and success in life is achieved by walking in the footsteps of the Lamb and you know where that took him. Straight to the cross, slaughtered. And I wonder whether you've had opportunities this week, this last week, to have as your imagination, as your world view, as the, the understanding of what constitutes reality is readjusted again in the light of Revelation, have you had chances to live in service? Have you given away stupid amounts of money to people who need it? Or ministries that have you given away foolish amounts of time when you could have been feathering your own nest much more advantageously? Have you actually wept with those who are weeping, laughed with those who are laughing, rejoiced with those who are rejoicing? Have you served this week? Because that's what life and success and triumph and conquest are about. And do you believe it? Does the text of your life, does your diary and your bank balance, those are the things which tell the truth about your life, do your, uh, your diary and your bank balance tell this story, that you believe that service and sacrifice are the meaning of victory and success? That's what we learned from Revelation last week and we got a bit of a sense of how it is that in order to present to us the full spiritual and theological significance of ordinary space-time events, Revelation uses this pictorial, symbolic language. It, it's a way, it's maybe the only way, to achieve this task. The language that it uses is not an unfortunate error by the Apostle John. He made a kind of a crucial decision at the start of his writing. Hey, look, will I go for ordinary language or will I go for this apocalyptic stuff? 
hey, let's go apocalyptic, why not? And then afterwards he got there and said, ah, this is not working really, no one's going to get this. No, no, it's a, it's a great gift to us to speak these truths and remember who he's speaking them to. He's speaking them to a churches that are being persecuted viciously and hatefully if the letter is to be dated at the end of the first century. The Roman emperor requiring worship the what's called imperial cult. Worship of the emperor as the son of God at pain of torture and death. And think about it for a moment. You know, there you are, the science faculty leader, or Sonia, our women's vice president, hauled off before the university senate. Her legs are chopped off. And let's pray God not, because she won't worship. She won't worship the... Vice-Chancellor. And I wonder who turns up to EU the next week because they hauled her off at the end of this meeting. Who's here again then next week? What does it stop you to meet with God's people? What, Frankly, what it stops you is being a bit tired usually, isn't it? That's all. And for goodness sake, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, how many of us would stand for Christ in that kind of context? Well, that's who Revelation is written to, people who are in serious bodily danger. And John continues to open to us this picture of heaven. We saw that there was a scroll, the the will and purpose of the one uh, who is seated on the throne, and no one's competent to open it, that is to enact it, to make it happen, to put into effect God's will. Except there is one, the lamb is worthy. Why? Because he was slain. And the scroll, you remember, is rolled around a dowel and sealed with these seven wax seals. And as we look into heaven, we see the lamb pop the seals. Here we go. Now again, it's crucial to remember that the seals don't necessarily represent the end of the age. Uh, We're going to hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse um, and, and typically this has been taken to be what happens at the very end. I'm saying, no, no, let Revelation tell you about whether it's the end or not. So chapter 6, verse 1, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked and there was a white horse, its rider had a bow, like a bow and arrow. A crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Seal is opened. One of the four living creatures issues a summons. John sees a horse and a rider and they've got blood in their nostrils. They're here to conquer, to slaughter. The second seal is popped. Another horse comes out, this time red. Its rider takes peace from the earth with a great sword. The third seal summons a great black horse representing famine and the fourth seal has a rider named Death with Hades or the place of the dead tagging along. Now, are there horses that are going to come out when the end of the age is upon us? A really interestingly red-coloured horse. Does death ride a horse? I mean, you know, is that what John... No, John is using apocalyptic language to speak to us about real events. And these are images of war. He's saying, this is how the world is. The world is characterised by war, conquest, slaughter, famine, death. That's the way of the world. I understand someone counted this up in the last X thousand years of human history. There have only been 60 or 70 years ever without wars on the earth. This is the way the world is. I mean, we're in a happy little corner here in Sydney. 
the only wars we fight here are culture wars. But it's only a plane ride away. You don't have to go very far before you're in the midst of absolute horror. You go to the Congo, a war which has seen millions, millions, three million plus people killed. You don't hear about it much in the Sydney Morning Herald. They get bored quickly. They're not actually interested in truth. They're just more interested in selling newspapers. Millions of people killed. You go to Somalia or to the the Sudan. You can try Iraq or Afghanistan, both before and after the West got there. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands. This is the way the world is, you see, says John. The first century as much as the 21st century. Last century, 70 million people done to death by warfare, conquest, slaughter, famine and death. And it's interesting that John sees that this is not somehow the overthrow of God in the world. It's not that God is out of control here. He's the one who via his angel uh, or living creature summons these horses. The fifth seal is broken. John sees the effect of this on Christians. Namely, in this case, martyrs under the altar. We've had a morphing, as can only be done in apocalyptic literature. The throne room, the great big throne, has sort of morphed into a temple with an altar. And these martyrs cry out for justice. Chapter 6, verse 10. Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Now, is there a throne room in heaven? Any, sorry, an altar in heaven any more than there is a throne room? Yes, that question is, no, there's no altar there. There's no saints under the altar. It's picture language for a description of a reality that speaks of its true spiritual significance. Christians are not exempt from the suffering of this world. It will not be the case that just because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that somehow you'll find a magic path through it all. That won't happen. But the sixth seal reveals that those responsible for the death of Christian martyrs will indeed face judgment. When it's open, John sees a terrible earthquake with massive consequences. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide from us. Uh, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They won't stand. These kings and magnates, and that is the leaders of war. But there are some who will, those whom God has chosen and set his seal of protection and ownership on. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, a kind of a a brand, you know, like with with, uh, cattle uh, or a stamp like uh, you put on Sunday school kids' hands when they've been good. He called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd be given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we've marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Does it mean there'll come a time, I used to read books that suggested this, where you'd have a a brand, like instead of having a credit card piece of plastic with bars, right, and it was a very, it was regarded as a, 
back in the good old days, before there were Visa cards and MasterCards, there was a thing called a bank card. But the B on the bank looked like a six. It was a little lowercase b. And there was a number, 666. Ooh. That really worried some people who completely misunderstood Revelation. They thought that the bank card was going to be the kind of barcode that was going to be the mark of the beast on people's foreheads so that what you do... We've often wondered about this as a method of marking attendance at church, actually. You sort of have a big barcode reader and put a barcode on everyone and they sort of stand in. That way you'd be able to know who missed church and who you need to ring up and harass. Will there be seals with barcodes? No, it's imagery. What is the seal in the New Testament? Or who is the seal in the New Testament? Remember the Holy Spirit, yes. That's what people had, not some mark on their forehead, that's a picture language to describe an actual reality. But in a powerful and symbolic way. And then parallel to the way that John, remember John heard the name of the Lion of Judah but saw a slain lamb, two different images. How many, how many um, creatures of the jungle lambs aren't in the jungle how many quadrupeds are there in heaven none no lions, no lambs, it's God and his angels Um, uh, he now sees the number of those sealed sorry, hears the number of those sealed which is the perfect number of the complete people of God 12 times 12 times a thousand Two twelves because Old Covenant and New Covenant. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. A thousand is ten times ten times ten. Ten is the number of completion. Ten times ten times ten is ten cubed, which is the power of completion. So 144,000, who we learn later in chapter 14, are all virgin men, just by the way. So in case you think 144,000 is 144,000 actual people, it turns out it's 144,000 virgin blokes. That's not going to work literally, is it? Why virgin blokes? We'll come back next week. You'll find out why you, sister in Christ, are a virgin bloke. How's that? (laughs) So he hears this number and then sees the same reality in a different way. Verse 9 of chapter 7, after this, I looked... Now he sees. And there was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, their palm branches in their hands. So, so this people is both 144,000, that is the whole Old and New Testament, New Covenant people of God, and it's from every tribe and nation and language. Two pictures making two different points about the same reality. And they do what everyone does in heaven apparently before the throne. They sing. Do they sing? Shine, Jesus, shine. No! It's picture language. They worship, you see, verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they're before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. What John is saying to us is that this is the picture. This is the spiritual reality of that motley, bedraggled, somewhat useless and inbred thing called the church. What what is the 
culture around us tell us about the church, it's hopeless. It's a feeble relic of the Middle Ages to be utterly scorned and despised. I mean, you can have private faith if you want, if you're sort of that way inclined and a bit of a spirit, you know, emotional cripple and need something like that to believe in and can't face you know, objective and real facts like the scientific fact that we can all prove that there's no such thing as life after death. I mock scientific nonsense. The reality is that we are the perfect people of God assembled in battle order. That's why the people of Israel were counted. It happens twice in the Old Testament that they're counted and they're counted for battle. That's who we are. We have the privilege of serving God day and night. Don't believe what we're told about the church. Don't go private. That's not the way. And so they will receive the promise of God. Verse 16. Uh, They will, notice the future tense now, by standing firm and worshipping God, they will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd who will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, I'm suggesting this picture of the 144,000, which is only one more than 139,999, which is only one more than 139,998. You can count them. right? That's not the point about their numeracy. The 144,000 are the numberless number. That is how it is now. The church assembled to fight for Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus. We'll see in a few chapters' time just how the church fights for Jesus. And as we do that, God will look after us and he will be faithful to us and he will wipe away every tear. And we'll read more about that towards the end. Now, remember that there were seven seals and how many have we popped so far? Six. As we continue opening the scroll, what we're going to do is see the same basic picture repeated, this time not with seven seals, but with seven trumpets. Uh, What do trumpets do? They announce things, royal, powerful, divine things. And so what I want to suggest really is that chapters 8 to 11, which are the trumpets, are really the seventh seal. They're sort of the climactic moment of the popping of the seventh seal. The seven seals, the seventh is the seven trumpets. The same basic picture is presented but now intensified. But this time there are two new important points to learn. 8 to 11 uh, begin and end uh, in the same way. Um, And what I want to do is just give you a bit of an overview before then we look at some of the details. When the seventh seal is popped, uh, there is silence in heaven. Seven trumpets are handed out. What do you expect when there's silence? Seven trumpets are handed out. A big noise! Woo! The trumpets are going to blow. Except it doesn't happen. What happens at the start of chapter 8? What breaks the silence of heaven? You know what it is? It's the prayers of God's people. This is a, just a beautiful working with the imagery that John does here. What breaks the silence of heaven is your prayers. Heaven waits. The angels, shut up. Everyone's quiet. Everyone stop singing for just a little while. Blessed silence. Because no one wants to interfere with God hearing your prayers. How does that give you a sense of what you're doing when you pray? 
I don't know if you're like me, I sit down in my chair, I've got a sort of a prayer chair, I pray, half the time I'm wondering if anyone's listening, half the time it feels just a bit dumb to do it. I pray the same things week after week for the same kinds of outcomes and the same kinds of people. That's my experience. What's the spiritual reality of it? Heaven. Shh, shh, shh. Everyone, quiet. Cat is praying. Well, maybe not quite like that, but you know what I mean? You're praying. Shh, let God hear. Nothing in all of heaven is important as you're praying. And then you see what happens? If you read the start of chapter 8, um, God takes these prayers, which apparently uh, can be sort of quantified, they're mixed with fire from the altar, and they're thrown back down onto the earth. Now, is there, this is not lightning, just by the way. Right? The altar fire. Lightning is just ions and electricity and stuff in the clouds. In case you were confused that this was really what lightning was. Suddenly we understand what lightning is. It's the altar fire from heaven which God's throwing. No, that's not right. This is a picture. God answers the prayers of his people. Pure and holy from that altar. Um, the chapter 8 to 11 begins and ends with the same picture uh, of an earthquake, lightning, rumblings, peals, uh, heavy ha- peals of thunder and heavy hail. Um, and so I think this whole section is about how the people of God live in a, in a world which just sucks often and how they respond to God in that in prayer and how God responds to them. Throwing down things, which is what the trumpets do. They throw down things. That's the content of God's answer to the prayers of his people. After the sixth of the seven trumpets, there is a conclusion drawn. It's a very important point in the book of Revelation. A conclusion is drawn that it didn't work. That it didn't work. And just as there was an interlude after the sixth seal, the pattern is repeated after the sixth trumpet, there's an interlude, the scroll is opened, it's given to John by an angel. Naturally, John does what any good God-fearing prophet does when given a scroll, namely, eats it, of course. And then finally, in chapter 11, we get the content of the scroll, this scroll which has been occupying our attention Right through, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Suddenly, finally, we get the content of the scroll in chapter 11. It is a long and slightly obscure interpretation of a short but very obscure passage from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. It focuses on, the, uh, on two witnesses who have a remarkable ministry, eventually leading to 90% of the world being terrified and giving glory to the God of heaven. Then comes a seventh trumpet which fades into loud voices saying that the time for judging the dead has come and for rewarding the servants and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So by the end of chapter 11 we understand God's purpose for this world and announced is the judgment to come. In fact, pretty much all chapters 1 through 11 are not really about the end at all. It's only in chapter 11 that the scroll is opened and the purpose is revealed. And even then, chapters 12 through 14 um, are going to rehearse what the content of chapter 11 is anyway. So we don't really get to the end in Revelation until chapter 15. We'll look at that next week. So very briefly then, the trumpets. 
The first trumpet, chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet. There came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were hurled to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Uh, the trumpets uh, have biblical echoes in them, don't they? Did you, do, you know, do you have any kind of recollection of other seas being turned to blood in the Bible? The plagues, yes? And in fact, there's a number of parallels between these plagues which are rained down and the plagues from Exodus. The illusion is deliberate. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 20, these are called plagues, these trumpets. Remember that when Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, go jump in the lake. And so God sent against Pharaoh ten blows, ten great plagues. These were warning judgments to Pharaoh to honour God and to give him glory. And what the trumpets are symbolising is blows given to the world, warning judgments to honour God and to give him glory. They're the same sort of thing as the horsemen, you see. Designed to shake people up, but now they're more intense. Did you notice how much of the earth is affected by the trumpets? Anyone notice that? One third. How much of the earth was affected by the seals? Water. Highly more intense, the trumpets, aren't they? Now the fifth trumpet gives you a vision that's literally unimaginable. A star falls from heaven to earth. Apparently stars are good with manual dexterity and so it's given a key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, out of which comes a massive smoke cloud like the fires uh, that you sometimes see in summer. And out of the smoke cloud comes locusts who torture but don't kill happily. Woo, that's a... Locusts. Um, this is a play on three different images and fears. The locusts come from Joel chapter 2. Read the locust plague in Joel chapter 2. Um, they're all lined up like an army because what the locusts really are is an army making war. But they have this sort of really um, particular look which plays on the fear of uh, long-haired, uh, blonde sorry, long blonde-haired barbarians, uh, that is the Roman invasion of uh, uh, Israel. So um, John is picking up on these three different images uh, in order to say this too is the way the world is. Likewise, the sixth trumpet announces a cavalry of monumental proportions, 200 million horses. I don't know if there have been 200 million horses in the entire history of horses. That's a lot of horses. Someone measured if you put them all together, they would occupy the ground space of 125 kilometres wide and 2 kilometres deep. That is, a ho- is that is what's going to happen? Sometime soon there will be 200 million horses sort of chomping their way through Western Australia or something. What do we say these trumpet plagues? Well, these are events of the earth which cause pain and suffering. 
just like the seals. Events in our world which cause pain and suffering. Not to be identified one to one, the twelfth, the sixth, you know, the, the fifth trumpet is what happened in Lebanon on uh, the 12th of December 1968. Or not, not, it's not, that's not how it works. These are, these are typological. They show types of things. They're limited in scope to a third. They have a divine origin and sovereignty and they're warning judgments to people as the plagues were warning judgments. But they fail, you see. The people do not repent. Chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. By the way, this is another indicator that we can't be talking about the end of the world because at the end of the world when Jesus returns, etc., there won't be opportunity to repent. John is saying, here's how the world is but it's not going to work like that. Chapter 10 then marks a new vision and in some ways I suggest a new plan. John is now positioned on the earth. An angel of remarkable proportions comes down from heaven. Chapter 10 verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over its head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand Setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, he gave a great shout like a lion roaring. This is an angel from God. Clearly he's got the sort of royal insignia. When was the last person we met whose face shone like the sun? You remember? Was an answer? Yes. Anyone remember? Ooh, you guys are. It's been a long week. Is that right? <laughs> Chapter 1, yes. He has a scroll which is now opened. And that's what you'd expect, isn't it? The seals have been popped, the trumpets have sounded, announcing that it's about to happen, the scroll is opened. And this fits exactly what John describes at the start of the book. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, so God gave it to Jesus. Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That's exactly what you've got now. And it's being made known by the scroll. The angel does a symbolic action and then speaks. Chapter 10, verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announces, as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And Daniel is, uh, sorry, John here is picking up a vision from Daniel chapter 12. A vision which Daniel doesn't get. He doesn't understand. How long until it shall be the end of these wonders, says uh, uh, Daniel? And he just doesn't get it. It will be a time, two times and half a time. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And God replied to him when he says, I just don't understand this. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the end of time. And what have we just seen happen with the scroll? Been unsealed. John's saying, that which Daniel didn't get is now being revealed. This period of a time, two times and half a time, that is what's taking place now. 
Now, just work with me here. I say it's a year. A year, two years, and half a year. That's three and a half years, right? So how many months in three and a half years? Who's quick with their maths? 42. There you go. That's the meaning of life. No, that's the number of months in three and a half years. How many days in three and a half years? One thousand two hundred and sixty. Three and a half years, forty two months, one thousand two hundred and sixty days, a time, two times and half a time. Is that a literal three and a half years? Is it a literal forty two months? Is it a literal twelve hundred and sixty days? Of course not. It's this period before the end. This three and a half year period from Daniel has taken about two thousand years. They're, they're, they're long years. And uh, John takes the scroll and eats it, makes a meal of it, and is told to prophesy. Now, instead of prophesying, what he does, he does some engineering work. So, hands up any engineers in the room. And you guys are poorly... Well, here is your chapter in the Bible. Okay, this is Engineering 101, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told... Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample over the holy city for 42 months. See, there it is. And I'll grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, wearing sackcloth. Finally, this is the content of the scroll. Here is God's plan and purpose, you see. And you've got two images. One is this image of um, John measuring, marking the temple. What's the temple in the New Testament? The church. And John is to measure the church in its interior, but not its exterior. Internally, spiritually, the church is measured. It's defined. It's clear and sure and certain. Externally, it's attacked and trashed, trampled. During this whole before the end period, God will grant authority to two new figures, two witnesses to prophesy. And that leads to the second of these pictures then, the two witnesses. Verse 4, chapter 11. These are the two olive trees. Why not? And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the skies so that no rain may fall during their days of their prophesying. They have authority over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they, often as they desire. Now we know what lampstands are, don't we? What are lampstands? Churches, yes. Here are church, here's the church, but it's the church in its capacity as witness. Why two lampstands or five lampstands kind of run out of juice? No, because witness, to be authoritative or legal, how many witnesses do you need? You need two witnesses. So this is the church in its witnessing function. Numbers are not literal in Revelation. They're symbolic, they mean something. And here it's the authoritative witness of the church. It has authority to kill people. How? With words. With words of truth. No Wretched inquisitions and torture. That's pagan, not Christian. 
What an appalling thing when the church uses violence, that is, employs the methods of the evil one. They have authority to shut the sky like Elijah. They have authority to turn waters into blood like Moses. That is to speak and enact the word of God. Now if you read on in chapter 11, actually these two witnesses are killed. And it's because of their martyrdom that God restores them and vindicates them to life. And the outcome of all of this spiritual battle of massive proportions as the beast comes up from the bottomless pit, we'll look more about the beast next week, is at the end of chapter 11, at that moment, verse 13, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Remember, Elijah ran away. All of Israel was unfaithful except 7,000 who remained. And John takes that and reverses it. Only 7,000 go down. The rest are saved. All of humankind. 90%. The picture is that as the church lives in faithful witness to God, faithful even to death, that this is not somehow God out of control. This is not somehow the plan gone wrong. Come on, no. We're the church. We should be triumphing over everyone. No. How the church works is by faithful sacrifice and service, even to death. Even vice presidents getting their legs chopped off. That's not part, that's not the plan of God gone wrong. Of course it's not. That was the way it was for the Lamb. How would it be anything else for you and I? What John is saying to us is that we're the church. Our task is to be witnesses and we're to do that faithfully even unto death. This is how God will do his work in the world. The warning judgments apart from witness don't work. But with the faithful witness of Christ uh, that his church gives, God's purposes are fulfilled and salvation is brought to the earth. And so the challenge of Revelation today to you is this. Will you be faithful as a witness to Christ? I mean, what stops you from witnessing to Christ? Terrible, terrible things like people think you're dumb. Really appalling things like someone might not like you as much anymore. Remember that the churches are being tortured and persecuted. John's saying to them, this is not the plan gone wrong. This is the plan as it is. We have an unprecedented, un, unparalleled opportunity at, you know, here at uni where you meet people. That they come here every day to hear of Christ. Our task as the EU is to stand for him with faithfulness, clarity, even at the risk of cost, like these witnesses, even the cost of their own life. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would find us to be your faithful witnesses. We praise you for the example of those who've gone before us and ask that you would keep us from fear and cowardice, that you would realign our imagination, fill it with a vision of your glory. We ask it in your name.